So let's read our scripture for the day. For, the, for this morning, we are in the book of Matthew, uh, in chapter 9. It's a small passage, um, starting at verse 14. Follow along with me. Are we an ESV? Are we an ESV church or a CSB? What's our? What do we like? It's all good. Okay, I'm going to do CSB. That's what I was. What I like to read from. Some people are looking at me like I'm crazy right now. I love talking about this stuff. <laughs> then John's disciples came to him. That's Jesus saying, "Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast?" Jesus said to them, "Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them?" The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with untrunk cloth, because the garment patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the skins burst, and the wines spill out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. The word of the Lord. It is wonderful to worship alongside you this morning. Uh, As it was said, my name is Peter Lyon. I am the campus pastor at Christopher Newport University with Reformed University Fellowship. It's my great joy to serve there. Uh, Before I was there, I was at uh, VCU up in Richmond for a few years. Um, It's it's very different ministry, but a but a lot share uh, shared in common. And I've been really excited to be down at Christopher Newport. I heard in your prayers um, just the longing in the heart for for new laborers, and I feel uh, that the work that the Lord has appointed me at CNU is the calling up of laborers for the field. It's it's a great joy. Um, as people people often wander into our ministry from from strange places. I've had so many students come from bizarre. I almost call them Christian cults, just strange places, and come in uh, just to get to hear the gospel of grace preached. And, and out of that, we're sending people out. We have two young men who, are pursue, who after graduation this year are going to pursue ministry. Um, I have a young woman who's considering the mission field. But more than that, more than that, we can make a big deal of just things like that. We have, we have young people learning to lead worship. We have uh, people joining the service team, uh, working in the community of Newport News. It's, it's an exciting chance for me just to get to see the future of the church. And it's exciting for me in this season, where I'm, I'm in a season where I'm guest preaching a lot, to come and share uh, that the investment that you are all are making in the ministry of RUF is an investment in the future of the church. We got, we got guys from the shipyard. I was just talking with the chaplain at Fort Eustis. We might have some of those guys come down. It's not just God. We're, RUF is making an impact. And it's thanks to the, your prayers, uh, your, your support, uh, your encouragement, so thank you. It is also nice to get to come preach. Uh, I, I oftentimes as I move around, uh, people will say nice things like, just nice young man here to preach. I'm 38, I don't always feel like a young man. Especially on campus, I don't always feel like a young man. On campus, I feel like the old guy who has to justify his thing. I, I've gotten a new golden retriever puppy recently, and, I have, and I, my student's like, bring him to campus, bring him to campus. It's, like, ah, it's going to make me feel kind of weird. <laughs> Every, they all, the students all love him, come say hi. I'm like, I feel like a weird guy here with a puppy. I feel very old. It's pushing me towards like, I feel like, okay, 
start playing golf now. You know, that's, uh, that's, how, that's how it is. It's very affordable down here. It's funny. Yeah, I, I do. It's actually true. I do love golf. Uh, I, one thing I love about golf is you're always working on something. It feels very relevant to this passage. I feel like I'm always looking for this, like, patch to fix this thing. I wasn't, I didn't grow up wealthy. I didn't grow up able to play golf in Philadelphia where it's all private. Had to learn later in life on sort of goat track kind of courses that were all dirt. And um, playing now with some, some donors around the area and, you know, some guys who are really good. And I'm like, yeah, what's one thing I, I could fix in my swing? What's like a little patch I could make? They're like, I need to change all of it. Whole thing needs to be redone. That's so, so true of so many things in our life, right? It's like, what's the one, I mean, you can just see it on the internet. What's the one simple fix? What's the one neat trick we can make? When really what we need is to start, to start over, to start from the beginning. That's, that's what we read in this passage here in, in Matthew, uh, some, some men come to Jesus and ask him, kind of, what's going on here? And Jesus explains to them, I don't think you quite know what's happening. The way you're speaking to me makes me think, you don't really know who I am. So let's, uh, as we look into this passage, I'll, I'll read through some of it again. It really kind of breaks down, I think, into three parts. Do we know why we do what we do. Second thing is, when we encounter Jesus, does he fit into our little kingdom? And finally, kind of confronted by Jesus, we're, we're going to get or, to the question, or, or do we fit into his? So let's start with this question. Why do we do what we do? Uh, the way this passage starts is John's disciples, this is John the Baptist, has his disciples come to Jesus and say, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. I think something that, that we have to, some context we need before we dive into this passage is that before Jesus becomes a big deal and his ministry is a big deal, John the Baptist is a huge deal. I think it gets lost in our sort of modern readings of the gospel. Why do all four gospels start with John the Baptist baptizing Jesus? It's a weird story. As Christians, we need to, like, it's, 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 a, it's a strange story. I think we don't understand how big a deal John was. You read, I'm a history major. You read the contemporary, the, the contemporary histories. They all, mention, they all mention John. John's a big deal out there. He's famous. And his disciples, all these people who've gathered to John, come to this and see John say, hey, I'm not even fit to tie this guy's sandals. Well, they want to know who this Jesus guy is. If John, who's a big deal, says this guy is a huge deal, I want to know who he is. And they come encounter Jesus, and John is this picture, this like aesthetic ideal of a holy man, right? He's out in the wilderness, he's wearing burlap, he's eating bugs and honey, and, and just like, oh man, this guy must be holy, because no one would choose to live this way. And then they come to Jesus, and how's Jesus... I don't think we, like, sometimes this is a thing, like, I think we have a very, we have a picture of Jesus that looks more like John the Baptist. How's Jesus living? 
He's moving feast to feast, party to party. Every rich, corrupt sinner in the area is bringing Jesus over for a big cookout. And John's, John the Baptist guys are like, his boys are like, what's going on here? We are following John. The Pharisees, who we are having fights with, we look more like them than we look like you. We're fasting. We're taking two days off a week from eating. And you're feasting every day. I think it's important for us to sort of examine fasting. Fasting is an interesting thing. We don't really practice it a ton as a discipline. Um, it's still an active spiritual discipline. Jesus doesn't say fasting's wrong. Fasting is gen- you know, prescribed in the Old Testament. It's interesting. Fasting is generally seen as a good thing. But there aren't very many general fasts proclaimed. It's interesting that the Pharisees and John the Baptist have this regularly scheduled fast because there's no law about that. Fasts are generally this thing you do in in this moment of, you know, it's like, oh my goodness, we need to repent. Everybody fast. It's like this modifier. It shows how serious you are. The Lord has done something, something great for us. Let, us. let us fast and recognize our need of him. It's not, it's not sort of an atoning work. It's not a work that gets you anything. But it, it's something that you do that shows recognition of God's work. It's a serious thing. But there's a time and a place for it. And as Jesus explains, I was like, This is neither the time nor the place. If you knew who I was, you'd be feasting too. And he uses the illustration of, like, the bridegroom is here. Do you guys like, I I love weddings. I'm a big wedding guy. I really enjoy them. Uh, It's been really fun uh, recently getting to officiate over some weddings, some of my old students from VCU. I got to officiate my interns I have an intern in my ministry. He got married this summer. I got to uh, go out to Kentucky to officiate that wedding. It was really fun. It's funny, though in the lead up to it, wasn't very fun. I, uh, I had been, the, the week before, I, you know, I was at General Assembly out in Memphis for the denomination. I had been mugged at gunpoint. Had all my IDs stolen, everything. It had been really hard to get there. Fun, weird thing, too, two of the groomsmen got got robbed as well on the way up there. And we're talking about it. You know, as we're... As we're yeah. But when the wedding starts, even though I'm, I don't make a joke about that, I don't, I don't mention that in my homily, in my little sermon. Because the wedding's not about me. As bad as my week had been, as bad as the groomsman week had been, once the wedding started, it was about Ian and Eliza. And it was time to celebrate. Because celebration is a discipline. If fasting is a discipline, celebration is also a discipline. And there's way more feasts that are prescribed in the Old Testament law than fasts. Jesus is telling them, you've gotten really comfortable with the fasting part of your faith. The forlorn, head covering, sad, like covering yourself in ashes, wearing sackcloth. You've, you, which can be, we can perform that, can't we?
But he, but he also poses, a, he poses this question to John's disciples that I think we need to spend time with too. Do we grasp just how big a deal Jesus is? Do we grasp how much Jesus changes how we relate to God? How we practice our faith? Do we grasp that the bridegroom has arrived? And Jesus hits us with this short little parable, this little pair of parables here. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. I'll start with that one. I don't know, how, how many of you still patch clothing? I, I grew up with like patch, patches, on like, more iron-ons than like sewn-ons, but I grew up with patch clothing. But I feel like with the, in the Target era of $10 pants, it's like a patch costs just as much as like a new pair of pants. It's a weird time that we live in uh, with, with clothing like that. But there really is something too, like, you know, so some of us, this might even, for the first time in history, becoming an unfamiliar parable. It was very relatable. You know, what happens with brand new clothes when you put them in the new linen, new, new cloth, when you wash it? It changes shape a little bit. You know, it shrinks. It, it, it finds a new shape. So an old, beat-up pair of jeans gets a tear in it, and you put brand new denim over that, and you just do a little light stitch on it. The minute you throw those in the dryer, the minute you wash and hang them, even if you hang them outside, the minute those get warm, those pieces of cloth will start to change shape. And the tear that was this little tear that you put a little patch in suddenly becomes a whole big rip that rips at the edges. You know, uh, I'm, I'm also dealing with this. I don't, I don't do a lot of patched clothing. I'm dealing with this uh, in, my, in, my go- in my yard. I have a seven-year-old boy and a 12-week-old golden retriever who both love to dig holes. Just not for anything, just for holes. My mom got my son this little, like, metal shovel that's, like, kid size. So it's, like, great. He digs these perfect ankle-width holes in the yard. And it's funny. He digs them, and I'm like, okay, I'll just fill this back in. But you put the new soil there, and it rains. It's like that, that uncompacted soil just sort of shrinks in there. And then the hole just also, it makes the hole worse. You know, I need to like get, I need to pile on the dirt to fill it up. Jesus is saying, it's like you are, so what's Jesus saying with this parable? He's saying you imagine that you need this small little patch that you can fix with the atoning work of fasting. You think, if I take two days a week and I do this ritual and I do this, it will, it, will, it will cover, it will atone, it will fix the little rips in my life. Jesus is saying, if you want me to be that patch, I'm like a new piece of fabric. I'm going to pull on a couple other threads here. If you, put, if you put me into that position. What do John's disciples think Jesus is here to do? They think, if we could guess from the imaginations of Judaism at that time of what their Messiah would do, 
based on what you know, they were constantly trying to do is liberate themselves from Roman occupation, set up a new kingdom with a just king. It almost, it, it, it sounds actually very ambitious if you grasp the strength and the power of the Roman Empire. They probably think they're looking for a pretty, pretty sizable patch. Jesus says, you are thinking so small. What you were looking for me to do to fix this thing in your life is so small. And if you try and use me that way, it'll tear everything apart. That should force us to think about what do we think Jesus was here to do? Was Jesus here to sand the rough edges of our life? To, to point us towards a more moral way of being. Maybe if we imagine his death and resurrection as, as a light kind of mop-up project, you know, maybe you know, fill it, refilling the holes that we dug in the yard. That doesn't really line up with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, though, does it? If Jesus, if we take Jesus at his word, if we take him at his word that he is who he says he was, that he is the son of God, that the son of God was born into poverty under foreign occupation in a barn. We love our little Christmas nativity sets that are so clean and, and you know, it's like he was born in a barn and grew up poor. We know that his parents gave the, the sacrifice attributed for poor families. And he lived perfectly, loving, healing, serving, only to die when he was completely innocent. Then to, to raise from the dead and defeat death. Not to stand in judgment of us. Not to say, look, I lived perfectly. How come you guys can't get it together? No, but to welcome us into his inheritance? To say, what is mine is yours. I have won it for you. If that's the work that Jesus came to do, how can we understand that work within the context of the lives we are already living. Let me explain that a little bit. Is Jesus just a, a patch for us? It's like, I'm mostly good. I just need this little bit of coverage from Jesus. I've driven most of the way home. I just need somebody to cover that last hour of the ride. Or do we grasp that the things that we had built, the garment that is our life, is trashed. We've trashed it. We've destroyed it. The shame and the indignity of this world has soiled it. We need a brand new garment. And I want to tell you, Jesus is giving us a warning. If we try and teach Jesus like treat Jesus like a patch, if we try and teach, treat Jesus as if he is just this one little additional thing we need, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull on some things. 
Some uncomfortable questions are going to start to be raised by Jesus' death. Why did you need a patch exactly? What caused that hole? Are you so sure about the other things that you've made and you've built and you've sewn? The legs of your jeans have fallen apart. Why are you so sure that the rest of it's going to hold on? And so Jesus gives us a different parable, a different analogy. And he says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Wineskins. You probably don't know what's going on here. Um, I am just the person to fill you in this because before ministry, I spent four years wandering in the wilderness of working in brewing and winemaking. And so I'm going to share a little something with you. Uh, What Jesus is talking about is the fermentation process here. When when alcohol is made, when wine is made, um, sugar is converted by yeast into two things, alcohol and carbon dioxide. So anything that's fermenting will be producing a lot of gas, a lot of CO2. Now, we can control that process pretty well in the modern age, but back in the day, even though a wine might be finished fermenting, they would still put it into something that was flexible. They wouldn't put it into glass. They wouldn't put it into clay. They would put it into skins because skins had a little give. That way, if when they moved the wine, it started fermenting a little bit and a little more gas appeared, you know, it wouldn't explode the bottle. I used to work, I was actually a certified beer judge. I used to work in competitions and it was staggering how many people would send in things that weren't finished fermenting and the glass bottles would just explode like little grenades. She have a, I had to get stitches one time because it ripped open my hand. The thing is about fermented products, all fermented products is that they're living products. And that's part of what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. The grace of God is something living and active. The promise of the gospel is not that something will remain the same. It's not that something will be just patched over, just cleaned up. The promise of the gospel is change. The promise of the gospel is an active grace. Not a punched ticket, but an active transformation. That transforming grace will push on the neat boundaries that we would make for it. Our old ways of doing things will be pushed on. Now here's the thing. So say that you made wine and you put it into a wineskin and it would push and it would stretch that wineskin. Well, eventually that wineskin would lose, would run out of stretchiness. If you took that same skin and the next year put new wine in it again, it would start to stretch it again and it would just rip and burst. Our old ways of doing things that we don't want pushed on, they're like that old wineskin. We've stretched a little bit. We've grown a little bit. Now we're comfortable. We, we want to have our... There's so many places in our life, right, where we want to have our final shape. We're like, yes, this is the rhythm. This is the standard of my life that I would like. I don't want this pushed on at all. And I think this stands for both, you know, whether you're coming to this from a religious background or an irreligious background, whether this is something new for you or old for you, whether the grace of God is new to you and you're like, I was just looking for something to, to fill this little hole I've got or to help me live a little better, or, or, or say you've been in the church for a really long time, you're like, I've grown a lot and I'm tired of growing. 
grace keeps calling on us for change. It won't fit into the rhythms and the practices and our comfortable little lives that serve us. Because what is it changing us into? It's changing us to look more like Jesus. It's changing us to fit into his kingdom. But it's a beautiful kingdom. One of the things I love about the Gospels is, that, is when they pair Jesus' teaching with his miracles. Right after this, there's, there's, there's a famous set of miracles that Jesus does that I think help us to grasp the goodness of what Jesus is saying. Not just the hard part of what Jesus is saying, but the beautiful goodness of what he's saying. After this, somebody comes up to him and asks him to heal their daughter. Their daughter is sick. In a certain sense, this man is looking for a patch. Something has gone wrong. In his good, he's wealthy man. Something has gone to upset that nice, beautiful life. His daughter, whom he loves, is sick. So Jesus goes to him. But along the way, a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years comes and touches Jesus' cloak. Now, uh, due to the kind of the a kind of a loophole in the law, this woman has basically been outside of society for all these years. Something that was supposed to protect her is now, you know, I'm not preaching on this whole sermon, but something that's supposed to be protecting her is suppressing her within the religious system. And the fact that she touches Jesus should be a grievous violation. She could be making him unclean. But we see something of the newness of Jesus. He is this not here to reinforce the old way of doing things, but he's here to reinforce the right and righteous way of doing things. And instead of being punished, her faith makes her well. And finally, Jesus arrives. Because he has taken time with the woman, he is late and the little girl has died. And everyone is mourning and and even gets to the point of mocking Jesus for, for saying that he is here to heal her. But Jesus goes to show the, the father that, that what he asked for was more than he bargained for. Because Jesus was here to do more than just patch up the neat little life that Jairus had. And he lay, raises the little girl back to life. Because Jesus didn't just come to fix up the rough edges of our life, but he came to reshape it and make it new. Our hope for Jesus is often too small, isn't it? It's often too limited. We believe he's an aide or a, or a counselor, a patch. And, and I'm just here to warn you, if he's used that way, it's, it's terribly inconvenient. He's going to keep asking you questions. He's going to keep saying, why is this all tattered? Why is this this way? Why do you need me in the first place? Say, you're, say you are a moral, rule-following, upstanding person. Says, I just need a little grace to cover this little sin pattern that showed up in my life that I, that I don't know how to deal with. All of a sudden, this little grace you're extending yourself brings up some inconvenient questions. If I've been forgiven, what do I need to forgive? How, how'd that sin pattern show up in the first place? Where'd it come from if I'm so good? And if you listen to these questions, it'll start pulling on some things. Turns out, the living sacrifice of Jesus was a way better deal than a little fix. 
He is making all things new. He is making all things new. It's just such a beautiful thing to look at when you're willing to look at it again with fresh eyes. That Jesus came not to condemn us. He didn't die as the final nail in our coffin, the final piece of evidence to hold up and say, see, there is no redeeming these people. But no, was willing to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, what our little fasting, what our little acts of devotion couldn't do for ourselves. He came to do. He bore what we could not bear. And the miracle of his resurrection that he truly rose with a body from the dead three days after he was crucified, tells us that there is something tangibly better and new and lasting for us through the power of his grace. When we look at the resurrection of Jesus and the beauty of the kingdom that's promised, it should make us look back at the shabby little remains of our plans, our life, our little kingdom that we are trying to build here and recognize that they cannot handle this new thing that Jesus is making us into. And that's not a bad thing, that's a great thing. Because what we are made for is so much better than the shabby little plans we had. We are made for an eternity with God. An eternity of feasting, not fasting. And our hearts will never be content without him. But they don't have to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we are welcomed into your kingdom by your grace. A grace that is unimaginably greater than we asked for. We do not often grasp how much we need you, Lord. We often ask for too little, Lord, but I pray that you would give us what we need. The grace that is living and active inside of us that is at work constantly pushing and changing us and making us new because the new thing you are making is better and it is good. We pray this in Jesus' name.